and welcome to Rising. Thank you for joining us on Monday. Brianna Joy Gray, hello, how are you? Hello, Robbie Suave. I guess I don't know your middle name. Uh, well, I'm not gonna, it's kind of an embarrassing one. I'm not gonna share it. We'll leave, I'll leave the sleuths in the comment section to go Someone find it. should make this their ask me anything question for, for oh, the weekend. Oh, and we will have to reveal it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I was gonna comment on our uh, wardrobe choices. We're both going with the blue and the red Yes, I accent. always love it when we align. We, when we have simpatico as we are getting dressed in the morning, suggest that maybe we'll have simpatico here today on the show. I think we might on this subject at least. We'll see when uh, we get to the updates in the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict, how that shakes right. out. But uh, right. let's talk about this subject. Yeah, well, we have a new bombshell report on the 2022 destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline. They found a senior Ukrainian military officer with deep ties to the country's intelligence services played a central role in the bombing. This is according to the Washington Post. Per the Post, Roman Chervinsky, a decorated 48-year-old colonel who served in Ukraine's Special Operations Forces, was the coordinator of the Nord Stream operation. People familiar with his role said managing logistics and support for a six-person team that rented a sailboat under false identities and used deep-sea diving equipment to place ex explosive charges on the gas pipelines. As pointed out by the Daily Wire's Greg Ree, it took the Washington Post a year to admit that Tucker Carlson was right about Nord Stream. A year ago, The Post published analysis on Tucker Carlson's, quote, shoddy case linking the U.S. to alleged Nord Stream sabotage. Then six months ago, they reported that the U.S. had intelligence of detailed Ukrainian plans to attack Nord Stream pipeline. The Gray Zone's Aaron Mate weighed in on the Washington Post Nord Stream arc, tweeting, quote, your first clue that the Washington Post new Nord Stream scoop is yet another CIA cover story is in the second graph. U.S. and Western officials have called the Nord Stream bombings a dangerous attack on Europe's energy infrastructure. No top U.S. officials, namely Blinken and Newland, have openly celebrated the Nord Stream bombings as a tremendous strategic opportunity that they're very gratified by. Meanwhile, contributing editor at Unheard, Mary Harrington, added on the story's timing, it's official, Ukraine is no longer the current thing. Earlier this year, we spoke to veteran journalist Seymour Hirsch about his exclusive reporting. The President Biden personally ordered the destruction of Nord Stream. Here he is defending that reporting. I've been in this business with sources like this for 50 years. Um, when I first did Beli, uh, there was, you know, overwhelmingly disapproval of what I wrote. And most of the stories I wrote that were controversial has always been attacked on the, on the you know, it's, it's easy to get rid of something on the basis of anonymity. And so um, uh, you have to understand um, there's, there's no alternatives. Either people, the people I've known inside um, have one thing in common, and, and mil whether military or civilian, and that is they really understand that they've taken their oath of office to, not to not to the their boss not to the general or admiral uh and not to not to the president but to the constitution and those are people that when they get troubled by things that are going on have talked to me and this, this has been going on i've done this for 50 years Hmm. All right, so what do you make of this story? Aaron Maté, as we just read, ex is continuing to express some skepticism that this is the full extent of it, um, pointing out that the story seems to take at face value the idea that the West was devastated by this explosion when we have on record a number of U.S. officials saying that it was strategically advantageous for the United States. Uh, do you think this is the full story, or do you agree with what Aaron Maté seems to be alluding to here, which is that there's more and perhaps more implications of the U.S. government in this? Well, I mean, like Seymour Hersh's version of events, this version of events, other version of events, 
I'm not, I can't read the direct intelligence, right? You're, right. you're relying on some um, narrator, some mediator to, tell, to say, I saw documents, I talked to people, and this is my analysis. That was true of Seymour Hersh, who's a great journalist, but he was telling us things that he had seen and heard, not documents we could review ourselves. That's the same case with The Washington Post. Um, I, look, I, I think the original narrative about what happened, remember, the original narrative about Nord Stream was that Russia did it. That's what the mainstream yes. media eagerly asserted without evidence or much um, much motive, uh, <laughs> motive <laughs> to do it. Yeah. So that seems to have totally collapsed. I, now, I will. Seymour Hersh's report squarely blames the U.S. Mm -hmm. Says Biden was personally responsible. Said the the di it's, it was U.S. What Navy SEALs diving mm -hmm. team that were trained in the U.S. to do this mission. The Washington Post is saying no, it was Roman Shervinsky, this kind of rogue um, Ukrainian operative who's actually in prison right now. He mm -hmm. was arrested for um, for launching some kind of operation that he was he did not have authority to do. Um, so given that. So, so that is true. So he, 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 they arrested him for that. That was sourced. So now they're now saying he did this too. I just don't understand. If it is still somehow the U.S. did it, why would, why would you, why would Ukrainian officials be taking the? And we're about to cut them off of support anyway. Why would Ukraine be like falling on its sword and taking the blame for this? Because as long as it's someone random, rogue, unaffiliated, and not attached to a foreign national including not attached to Ukraine, then they can escape national liability for destroying a multi-billion dollar infrastructure project that Germany and other European powers had spent a lot of money on and were relying on. It took significant both political and economic hits uh, from having to source gas from elsewhere and have to tell their constituents why it was that they were having to pay more at the gas pump or to fuel their houses over the winter. So as long as it's just a guy, then they are basically absolved of any personal liability. Well, I mean, it's not just a guy. It is the that this would have been organized by, not by Zelensky himself, according to the Washington Post, but the ne the most senior military figure, um, Zelazny, that he would have been the person involved. So that go does go pretty, yeah, pretty directly probably. to the top. Look, a, I, I think— A downstream it, fall guy versus the top of your government I mean, it's not a, that's done with Well, it's the top of the Ukrainian government. The Ukrainian government is very much impugned by this. Right, no, but the problem is, if it's the top of, even if it's the top of the Ukrainian government, if it's literally Zelensky, first of all, the idea that Zelensky was going to do or sanction anything without the support of the United States from whom, on whom it was entirely and continues to be entirely reliant to be able to fund this war is unlikely. So I think there's two, there's well, two. What do you mean? I, I don't know if it's unlikely. I think it's the no, most, this, this, I think it is in fact the most likely thing at this point. So these are the two scenarios. Either yeah. you have it, you, you did this with the U.S.'s consent and complicity. You did it together and neither of you want your hands dirty. And if one goes down, the other goes down. So everyone's looking for a fall guy downstream. Or alternatively, Ukraine sanctions it without the U.S.'s approval and needs to not be tagged with it personally, is able to put it on a downstream fall guy. I'm not, I'm not saying I know that obviously any, either of those things happen, but those are the scenarios that people are playing out in their head. Either way, everyone has benefited. Every national government has benefited from not being personally responsible for what was an act of terrorism on allied infrastructure. Nobody is ever going to want to claim national responsibility for an act of terrorism on allied infrastructure. Yeah. It it just at this point it seems like the 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 bulk of what is known is is favoring that Ukraine did it which seemed most likely to me from the beginning because they 
they are the—I mean, they're the ones being invaded. They're the ones that can take take a risk or take a gamble, and it seems like less of a big, big deal sure, to them. I, I because mean, Bobby, again, I think the question is, did Ukraine do it acting solo, or are they doing it acting with the backing of the United States? And remember, part of what ca casts such suspicion over various narratives that have come out over the course of the last year plus is the fact that there have been calls for independent investigations in the U.S. Security Council that got shut down by the United States and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. with veto power in the U.S. Security Council, Russia, China, other nations said, let's just have an independent U.N. investigation. They said no. So, again, there is this question of why are, you know, who has the motive here to not want to get to the bottom of who was the actor in the situation. Yeah. That, that, that is the sort of circumstantial evidence that's causing folks, I think, like Aaron, to continue to be skeptical Well, and I would narrative. like to see, I wish I could evaluate myself, the documents that Seymour Hersh claimed to have for for purchase for equipment being purchased, purchase order documents about the training they were doing, because it was a very specific uh, allegation that he made that it was organized by uh, U.S. Navy SEALs diving team in wherever what in Florida or somewhere was, in the somewhere coastal the United Gulf. States. Yeah. Um, and I you know I would like to see more to support that. Obviously, it's it perfectly possible that it's true. It, I wouldn't put it past the United States at all. But also I it. The, the narrative that Ukraine did this and why they would have did this and, and this figure's involvement specifically um, also does not require a lot of additional explanation at this point, and maybe it is as simple as the butler did it. I mean, one other thing that was notable and I think persuasive about um, Cy Hirsch's reporting was pointing out that there are very few people who are trained in the first place to be able to carry off this mm -hmm. kind of very technically sophisticated operation. Remember, there was a story some months ago uh, about a boat that was found on the shore with this amount of residue on it, that they were saying, this is the boat that was used in the, in the, um, in the bombing attack, where experts were like, okay, well, this, this, this boat is not big enough to hold the number mm -hmm. of explosives. Who was, who was trained to actually be able to do this? This is the kind of operation that wasn't necessarily you wouldn't necessarily imagine was done on that kind of a small scale. So to me, I would I would also continue to want to know what what diving training has this individual had? Is it possible for one or uh, six individuals in this case that a team of this size to have actually right. carry this out? Were the other people on this alleged I mean, what, team actually trained in the ways that that, yeah. that could been, what is described in this yeah. article is again is similar to to what the account was, but just that it was not done, not on, done. on in the U.S. Yeah. That a sailboat was rented, and they yeah they used deep sea diving equipment to attach explosives to the pipeline. Um, so it's a it's a simple the, the 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 what of it is similar. Yeah, but the question of. Yeah. Size, size point was that there were only a handful of people in the world that were trained. I think he said some Scandinavians and some Americans. And that there were a certain number of facilities where people learned this kind of training. Mm -hmm. And that you should be able to basically trace back who was, could possibly be implicated yeah. to those points of training. In, right. In, in, in I, I've also, I know other analysts of the war effort have said, I, again, I, I don't have any expertise here, can't individually evaluate this myself, but have said that Ukrainians, um, the, the Ukraine's military capabilities um, were, were beyond what might have been expected. They were able to, to carry out some bombings, even within Russia, those kinds of things. It is more technically impressive, and, uh, and, and this would be in keeping with that. I don't know. I, I guess I'm also reflecting on just a few months after Oceangate, seeing the a, a, a multi-millionaire, billionaire, I can't even remember now, mm -hmm. ha, that his hubris led um, those 
people in that um, submergible to such a disastrous end. I mean, going deep underwater is a very, very serious undertaking mm -hmm. that requires not just bravery or even individual personal skill, but a lot of technical know-how. And so I would expect to see that fleshed out um, going forward if this if this guy really is the person involved in the story. Well, tell us what you think in the comments. Let us know if you're uh, if you're persuaded by, by this new reporting. Um, and uh, we'd love to get Seymour Hirsch on again to react to what uh, we've learned here. Uh, more Rising right after this. Elon Musk is worried that what Benjamin Netanyahu is doing in Gaza could actually be creating more terrorists. Let's watch. You're, you're going to leave basically a lot of people alive who subsequently, you know, hate Israel. So really the question is like, how, for, for every Hamas member that you kill, how many did you create? Mm -hmm. And if you create more than you killed, you've not succeeded. That's the, you know, the real situation there. Um, and it's safe to say that if, you know, um, if, you know, if, if you kill somebody's child in Gaza, you've, you've made at least a few, uh, Hamas members. That was during an interview on the Lex Friedman show. Musk's comments come amidst bombshell new reporting in the Washington Post that Hamas intended to strike a blow of historic proportions on October 7th with the expectation that their actions would compel an overwhelming Israeli response, like exactly what's happening. Per the Post, militants prepared for a second phase of assaults amid hopes of inspiring violence in the West Bank and beyond. Meanwhile, over the weekend, the U.S. conducted another round of uh, airstrikes in Syria, where they killed Iranian proxies in response to an uptick in attacks on U.S. military personnel in the region. Per the State Department, President Biden is currently working with Qatar to negotiate the release of hostages and delivery of humanitarian aid to civilians in Gaza. The World Health Organization is warning of a dire and perilous situation at Gaza's main hospital amid shortages, shortages in electricity, supplies and medical care after a weekend of Israeli bombing. Palestinian officials say the Al-Shifa hospital is now out of service, and at least 32 people, including three newborns, have died because they couldn't continue life-saving care. As of this morning, Israeli ground forces are said to be at the hospital's gates. They say Hamas is using Al-Shifa as a compound, a claim Hamas denies. So I thought that clip from Elon was very interesting. Elon is now essentially a figure of the right of the conservative world, and it, it speaks to um, some difference of, differences of opinion that do exist, I think, on the right about what to do. Um, he was making a point there that I have made on this show, um, you know, despite differences I think we have on what's, go what's going on and what Israel should be, there is a, a very rational concern you should have, even from a pro-Israeli standpoint, that as a result of this, of this bombing and the number of civilian deaths, you will, down the road, have more Hamas sympathetic, more people joining Hamas, more terrorist attacks on behalf of people who have been radicalized by, what, by, what that, by what's happening. And that is a, that's a huge concern. Yeah, it's interesting to hear Elon Musk speaking in a way that sounds just like a parent, to be honest, mm -hmm. a parent of, of a lot of children, reflecting on how I think anybody, a very human response is to be um, radicalized, to be angered, to become enraged by 
um, the senseless killing of one's own child. And now, of course, you've seen that almost half of the now 11,000 plus people who have been killed in Gaza by the IDF since October 7th are, in fact, children. You're getting reporting over the weekend of the unspeakable tragedy at Al-Shifa Hospital. The hospital has become not only a refuge for hundreds of people, uh, thousands of people to stay looking for safety um, in the midst of the airstrikes on Gaza, but additionally is one of the last functioning hospitals remaining in the area. There were photos circulating, videos circulating of babies on ventilators that had to be taken off because the ventilators are no longer functioning, there's no longer power and resources to keep them going. Doctors using manual um, stimulation techniques to try to keep them alive through the night. Um, several, as we noted, have already died. And that is not even bringing in, into account the fact that many people are concerned that the bombing is actually imperiling the hostages that are ostensibly the sole reason. Uh, or a, a chief reason of trying to exert pressure on Hamas. Hamas reported, and you can take this with a grain of salt if you'd like, but Hamas reported last week that 60 of the hostages had been killed. That's almost a quarter of all of the hostages that were taken in the first place. And you have the families of the victims of the October 7th Hamas attack in Israel begging the government, begging Netanyahu to stop the killing, sometimes on one level because they believe it's killing innocent Gazans who had nothing to do with their own family's murder, and also because they think it's jeopardizing the welfare of the Israelis and others who are being kept captive currently. Right. I mean, I think that the main Israeli goal, and you can disagree with it or think it shouldn't be the main goal, is to eliminate Hamas at this point. I I'm interested in this reporting that shows that basically what is happening is exactly what Hamas anticipated and planned for, that they knew and expected and, and frankly, wanted um, massive Palestinian casualties to result from their actions um, in, you know, in hopes that that leads to um, violence everywhere else and, and you know, keeps—and and, and does exactly, in fact, what Elon is describing, creates more Hamas terrorists down the line to replace the people who are being bombed. Um, I mean, I, th I think that— <laughs> speaks to their tremendous responsibility for what is happening, that they anticipated and wanted, um, that was their goal was exactly what we are seeing in Gaza. And it's really um, uh, horrible um, to contemplate. Of course, that doesn't obligate Israel to go down the path it's necessarily going on. And I, I think they should take seriously the amount of civilian casualties they're inflicting now, even from their own rational self-interest, and how this is going to turn out in the future. Well, given the rather unprecedented and catastrophic volume of uh, civilian deaths so far, again, now we're getting—it's harder and harder for the Palestinian Health Authority to report accurately on the number of deaths, because Israel has been targeting hospitals where so many of the records are being kept about who was dying. Um, but Israel put out numbers last week saying that they had killed 20,000 people, so twice as many as had been estimated by the Palestinian authorities, by the uh, Hamas medical authorities. So who even knows what we're going to see when the dust is clear? But this is why so many people are using the word genocide, not just because a number of humanitarian groups and UN officials and the like have said that this qualifies by the definitional term, mm -hmm. um, but also because if you if you are Israel and you believe, and Hamas believes, that this is a radicalizing act, 
then where does this end? If you are, if you, if Hamas is right that all of this bombing is leading to more and more people wanting to join Hamas, to resist Israel, to resist the occupation, mm -hmm. and to do so by violent means, which I, I have to reiterate again, that killing civilians is against international law. Resisting an occupation is not. But if you believe that that's what's going to happen, then what what is the natural course of action for Israel then? What, how does that make sense for Israel unless your plan really is to wipe out the entire population of Gaza? If you know that the more people you kill, the more people are actually going to end up being added to the resistance to Hamas in the, in the first instance, then what other way is there other than to completely eliminate the, the population through a combination of genocide and ethnic cleansing? I mean, my question would be almost the exact opposite. Does it contemplate the situation for people for activist groups in America, including the main the Students for Justice in Palestine group and other leftist activist groups who have expressed support for Hamas's actions, does it matter to any of them that Hamas knew going in and wanted massive Palestinian civilian deaths, anticipated and is happy about that result? I, I think that's going way too far to say they're happy about that result. But if you know that you're going up against a really brutal enemy that's demonstrated its brutality over the course of a 75-year occupation, remember, um, Hillary Clinton went on The View last week and argued that um, Hamas had ended the ceasefire on October 7th. But many people pointed out that 250-odd Palestinians had already been killed by Israel in 2023, prior to October 7th. Meanwhile, since the events in Gaza, there have been over 100 um, Palestinians killed in the West Bank, where there is no Hamas, that has nothing to do with Hamas, by a combination of settlers who are armed by the IDF and IDF soldiers as well. This really you have to think of as you have, don't have to think of it. You have to understand. You have to internalize. You have to acknowledge that this is an ongoing occupation. So if you're asking me, you know, is it, you know, should the ire be directed at Hamas? Well, for two reasons, I think people are indifferent—not indifferent to that—but it doesn't make, make any sense. One is that our government doesn't fund Hamas. We're not responsible for Hamas. By contrast, Israel receives more aid from the United States than any other country in the world. We send three to four billion dollars to them every year and have been doing so for decades. We are literally importing and, and exporting their um, military techniques and strategies across the world, including to our own populations. Um, and this is a, a country that we refer to as our one of our greatest allies in the world, the quote-unquote only democracy in the Middle East. So we have much more of a personal investment in, involvement in, and responsibility for the actions of Israelis. Moreover, and we talked about this a little bit last week, if you have a hostage situation, if you believe that Hamas is a terrible bad actor and that they're a terrorist group, what does it mean if the group that's attacking the terrorist group, fighting the terrorist group, kills more civilians and basically calls their bluff. If a terrorist group says, I know you don't respect human life, you know, why, why, or let me put it this way. Why would a terrorist group say, I'm going to use a human shield when you, they know from experience that the group they're fighting against doesn't respect a human life enough to avoid just killing the hostage? And that's what Israel has been doing for the last month, is killing, is shooting, is shooting the hostage, jeopardizing babies in the NICU wards, killing 4,000-odd uh, children, and not even—the deaths are one thing. The people who are surviving and having to undergo—kids undergoing amputations without anesthetic in the hallways of hospitals, 
people, uh, doctors, uh, the New York, New York Times uh, reported on The Daily this morning an amazing audio essay on their podcast interviewing doctors at Al Shifa Hospital, the kinds of wounds they're seeing. The doctors themselves don't have food. Their families are imperiled. Some of their families are being killed, even as they're trying to save the lives of others. You know, it, it, it is, I think, one of these situations that we're not really going to understand until the dust clears and the U.S. culpability in allowing this, because we also are refusing to call for a ceasefire, is going to be quite the thing to contend with. I, I, the, the group that has utterly no respect for human life is Hamas, because they planned this. They got the exact result they want, their own people being bombed and killed and maimed. That is, I mean, what, what, what government, what representative organization wants, has a, as an explicit goal, it's people getting massacred? Because that, that, that would, that, that's, a, that's the, like a definitionally terrorist, inhumane group. And to know that they're getting exactly what they want, which doesn't, which doesn't speak to, I, I oppose Israel doing it to this extent. I don't think we should well, fund them. I don't of, think we should support but them. But what kind of government supports an occupation of, of millions of people? What kind of government supports an ethnostate where they have apartheid conditions for non-Jews living within their own national boundaries? I mean, these are questions we can ask about all of these groups, and I don't begrudge them being asked about Hamas, but the problem is here that the country that we fund is not the country that is being posed with those exact kinds of questions that I think are important ones. Well, we'll have more rising or right after this. New reporting from Public reveals a Stanford University group helped the United States government censor COVID dissidents. Then they lied about it. Twitter files published by uh, the Twitter files published by journalist Matt Taibbi in March revealed that Stanford's Internet Observatory Initiative, also known as the Virality Project, pu pushed platforms to treat user concerns about vaccine mandates as disinformation and to consider stories of true vaccine side effects to be actionable content on social media. But an Internet Observatory spokesperson says it, quote, did not censor or ask social media platforms to remove any social media content regarding coronavirus vaccine side effects, public rights. An investigation by public has reportedly uncovered clear evidence that the Stanford project was directly and deliberately involved in successful censorship efforts through analyzing JIRA system tickets, the Virality, Virality Project's a tip line to social media companies. Joining us now is writer and director of digital civil liberties startup, LibreNet, Andrew Lowenthal, to weigh in. Welcome, Andrew. Hello, great to be here. Uh, perhaps it would be useful to start with the um, denial. You know, they're saying that the, that the, the Virality Project never uh, worked towards censoring any information about true vaccine side effects. What evidence is there to the contrary, specifically about this vaccine side effect uh, denial? Well, so firstly, the Virality Project is a follow-on from the Ele Election Integrity Partnership, which we now know uh, due to the, the House committee reports that, that came out uh, was explicitly created by uh, DHS and CISA and in the Election Integrity Partnership, they're very explicit uh, uh, communications that ask for the takedown of uh, content. But Virality Project essentially becomes the 2.0 version uh, of the, the EIP. It uses exactly the same JIRA ticketing system, essentially, as you said, a kind of tip line. Uh, and they pass on similar notes and information. There's several hundred tickets. They include, you know, 
flagging uh, epidemiologist, Harvard epidemiologist Martin Kuldorf, uh, for takedown uh, you know, due to his comments on the necessity or otherwise of vaccines for children. Uh, his content got flagged. Uh, and there's a whole host of these essentially uh, in there. So they were having an impact. At the same time, we also saw emails whereby Twitter knew that uh, this was a DHS initiative. They knew that the EIP was a DHS initiative and Virality Project, again, used exactly the same system. So surely they knew then that the weight of the federal government was also uh, backing uh, the Virality Project and the suggestions or otherwise that were being sent to them. Right. So to be clear, you, you can see that the Virality Project did, in fact, flag uh, COVID and vaccine content for, um, for the social media companies with every understanding that they were, you know, they weren't just going, hey, look at this. Isn't it interesting? They had every understanding Absolutely. that Twitter was going to look at this and do something about it. Sure, sure. Sorry. Um, I mean, there isn't as to the degree that we've uh, kind of gone through the tickets to date as explicit as there is in the election integrity uh, partnership where the, the takedowns are very, very explicit, but essentially the working relationship has already been created and content is flagged and you can see that it is then actioned as well. Yeah, I was just wanting to drill down on this this denial from the Stanford Internet Observatory spokesperson. I'm trying to figure out if they are actually being dishonest or if they are denying some segment of the allegation that might actually be authentic. They seem to be making a rather narrow denial, saying we did not censor or ask social media platforms to remove any social media content regarding coronavirus vaccine side effects. And I really do appreciate the specific example of the Harvard professor who was both flagged and his tweet was removed moved. But his tweet was not about, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, true vaccine side effects. It was about what he tweeted was, thinking that everyone must be vaccinated is as scientifically flawed as thinking that nobody should. And that was what was censored. Mm -hmm. So do you have any thoughts or feelings about what the Stanford Observatory might have meant by their denial? Was there, in fact, evidence of um, uh, tweets or comments that were censored specifically about true vaccine side effects? So we need to drill down more specifically on the true vaccine side effects. As you mentioned, that was a recommendation that they made to the platforms. There are a host of, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of tickets in the Jira system. And because those ones are, you know, you need to be very, very careful and specific on those ones. So the examples that we highlighted in the report weren't specifically related to whether or not they, they there are examples where they take down content of people claiming vaccine side effects, of course, we wanted to be sure that the person making the claim really did have a vaccine side effect, uh, and we will follow those up, but we didn't want to put them in this report because, you know, it, we want to be very, very, very sure on our claims as well, and hence we focused on the others. But in the JIRA tickets, and Jim Jordan tweeted them out, you can look through them, you will see that certainly uh, claims of someone having a vaccine side effect are included in the ticketing system. Yeah, it, it is. The ones you did flag in your in what you've written here are very, very it's fascinating. The project flagged um, uh, tweets about the Israeli study that found natural immunity to be as protective as vaccination. Um, the mm -hmm. Reality Project says, please note this narrative claiming that COVID-19 immunity is equivalent to vaccine immunity. Um, I guess uh, Thomas Massey had tweeted that, and they requested action there. They requested um, um, 
something to be done about um, Krispy Kreme donuts giving out free donuts to vaccinated people, and there was some criticism of that, and they labeled that criticism as anti-vaccination. Um, mm -hmm. From VAERS, uh, a PDF of the the VAERS reporting system um, that got uh, that got um, uh, uh, flagged, also flagged as yeah, protests, uh, anti sort of lockdown, anti mandate protests. Um, Virality Project called that organized outrage. Um, so it, mm -hmm. you know, I, I guess what where I think they're going to try to you know wiggle out of saying, oh, we, we called for censorship. They're going to say, no, we didn't specifically ask for a, an outcome. We just noted all of this content with full knowledge that we were Im implicitly, you know, recommending things for some action. But did we say take it down? No, no. That was just what they did in response to it. That, am I correct in thinking that's the line, that's the not believable line, but line they're trying to distinguish there? I think so, and I think that would be the cautious thing to claim from from our side uh, in terms of reporting at the moment. But I would also imagine that a little bit more digging could reveal the same level of explicit requests as we saw again in the 1.0 version, the Election Integrity Partnership, where there are very explicit requests for um, content uh, takedown. So it would not be surprising, but I don't, again, I just want to be very careful and not make that claim without having gone through every single ticket and checked every single claim of a vaccine-related injury. But what you point to is that, you know, these uh, flagging protests, flagging objection to Krispy Kreme, handing out free donuts, this was all within the framework of combating so-called anti-vaccine disinformation, whereas, you know, in these cases are just people having a different perspective and a different opinion, and oftentimes people having scientific evidence that contradicts uh, the CDC, which seems to be who they reference uh, very, very frequently, and who often, uh, as you've also mentioned uh, previously, turned out to be wrong on a whole variety of things. The other question is, why did Twitter, why did Facebook, why did TikTok, why did all of these different companies need an intermediary organization that was established by the Department of Homeland Security in order to uh, conduct this work. Why were they not able to do this on their own? And did you have a sense, uh, given what you've looked through so far, what percentage of flagged social media posts were acted upon and actually removed? Um, do you have a sense that there was a, a very high high percentage of the Stanford Group's uh, advice that was followed, or was there kind of independent reasoning going on here and, uh, as they were collecting information from uh, various people who might flag this, that, or the other, uh, and making an independent assessment? So that, that requires more, more digging. Uh, essentially, I couldn't give you a number at this stage. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. If the 2024 election were held today, Donald Trump would win. According to a new survey from Datastack Strategy, Trump would beat Joe Biden in the Electoral College by 292 votes to 246 if a presidential election were held today. Biden is still on course to win the popular vote by 49 percent to 48 percent. 
in the wake of several recent bad polls for Biden. His team, along with other Democrats, are scrambling. The New York Times Siena College survey and Emerson College poll show Biden is effectively tied with former president and GOP frontrunner Donald Trump with 30 versus 29 percent. According to Emerson, 45 percent of voters 29 and younger said they support Trump compared with 43 percent who are backing Biden. White House ex-press secretary for Biden Jen Psaki tore into Trump Sunday in her MSNBC show, maintaining that if he's reelected, it would, quote, unravel the rule of law as we know it. Let's watch. The hand-wringing and cocktail party speculation about an alternative to Joe Biden is continuing, will continue. Guess what? Joe Biden isn't perfect. No candidate is, by the way. But we have to understand what the alternative is here. If elected to a second term, Donald Trump would prosecute anyone he deems an enemy, unleash troops on protesters, and essentially unravel the rule of law as we know it. Here to break down the concerns that might be unfolding is Michael LaRosa, former press secretary for First Lady Jill Biden. Welcome back, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. I mean, I guess I have to first respond to Jen Psaki there saying, you know, if Trump gets back in office, uh, perceived political enemies will be prosecuted, protesters will be being prosecuted. Of course, Trump is right now the person being prosecuted, as were many of the protesters on January 6th and all of that. Um, are we in a position where the federal government is being weaponized against um, politically active people on both sides of the political spectrum? I, I don't know. I mean, the president's son is being weaponized against him. Uh, the former president isn't really, I mean, the former president has been indicted, I think, by uh, grand juries in multiple jurisdictions across the country. So. Uh, and I'm not sure it's related to politics. I think there's I mean, grand juries are made up of 10, 12, sometimes 20 people. So there's clearly evidence that the guy broke the law. But I don't know if that has anything to do with the weaponization of government. It looks like I think what Jen is saying is that Trump will try to weaponize the government for political means if he's elected. Um, he tried to do that a little bit before. But, you know, institutions held, and I'm a firm believer that we survived him uh, the last time, and I think our institutions will hold uh, should he win the presidency again, which I don't think he will. Well, Michael, let me ask you about something else uh, that Jen Zaki said there. She alluded to um, a kind of frustration with the idea that there are these other candidates in the race, Dean Phillips, Marion Williamson, RFK Jr., Cornell West. Um, and on and on, uh, seeming to suggest that they shouldn't be, that there shouldn't be a Democratic primary, echoing sentiments from the Democratic Party that there shouldn't be a primary, that there shouldn't be debates, that everyone should rally around Joe Biden, especially because the poll numbers are close between he and President Trump. But isn't there a counter-argument to that, which says because the polling is so close between Biden and Trump, we should have an opportunity for Americans to get to know other candidates and make sure that they can pick one that is is most likely to beat Trump, especially in light of polls that show a generic Democrat does better against uh, Donald Trump than Biden does? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's unusual for presidents to run for re-election, incumbent presidents. I think it's very normal. Uh, I also think when you're a successful first-term president, it's even uh, more likely and normal. No one runs for president for uh, four years. They run for eight. That was the deal the Democratic Party made. They had Look, the Democrats had plenty of options in 2020, plenty, um, from all different ideological spectrums. They chose Joe Biden pr pretty overwhelmingly. Um, 
And look, that election was close too. President Biden won by about 40,000 votes in about three or four states. Uh, I don't know why we expect a different uh, kind of race this time. Uh, I think it's going to be close, but I, I don't think anybody ever suggested it wasn't going to be close, no matter who it is. And you know what? A lot of the uh, pe folks that people would like to see run as an alternative to Biden chose not to simply because he's been so successful. If he wasn't in a strong position, there's no doubt in my mind that somebody would have challenged him, somebody credible like the governor of California. Well, let me but it's really hard to argue with the president's record, really hard. Is it that they weren't chosen, that they decided not to run because they believed so strongly in Joe Biden? Or could it be the following situation? Remember back in 2016, Biden was pressured uh, by Democratic Party members, including Barack Obama, not to run, to allow Hillary Clinton to run. And we all know what happened in that election. Hillary Clinton only was pulled above, outside of the standard deviation of error, above Donald Trump for, I believe, the week or so after the Access Hollywood scandal. The whole rest of the race, she was neck and neck with him in a way that many people felt like was disturbing. Here she is, a former vice president, a former, uh, sorry, a first lady, a former senator, someone with name recognition and a lot of credentials who couldn't even pull more than a few points above Donald Trump. Meanwhile, you had someone like Bernie Sanders, who polls consistently showed was polling 10, 10 points higher than Donald Trump that entire election season. But the mainstream media said that Hillary was more electable, and then we got Donald Trump as president in 2016. Are you concerned that similarly, more more able, you know, candidates that are more able to beat Trump are being pressured out of this race right now by the Democratic Party? No, I don't. I think the problem is that it's really hard to challenge a president who uh, was able to accomplish so much, most accomplished more things since Lyndon Johnson in his first term. You might disagree with a lot of those things, but you cannot say he hasn't been effective and that he hasn't been successful. Um, the other thing I would say, look, it was a close race in 16. It was a close race in 2020. Um, I would look at the county of Miami-Dade in Florida. I think Hillary Clinton uh, one beat Trump by 12 points and President Biden won by like two points. Um, that has a lot to do with the Bernie Sanders brand of the Democratic Party uh, and Cuban Americans down there who really have transitioned from supporting Barack Obama and other Democrats to really turning on the Democratic Party. So I wouldn't necessarily think Bernie Sanders or somebody from that wing of the Democratic Party is their winning solution. One one quick question Democrats before should not be we losing let Miami you go. County. Is, is, there a, is there a unique situation, though, with Biden? You, you say, you know, well, of course, it's going to be an eight-year situation, the president's run for re-election, et cetera. But Joe Biden, at the start of his first mm -hmm. term, older than any other person in that office, way, way older, still older than Trump, older than anyone else on that list. Now him—so is him running for re-election a, a specific, a different scenario for him? And then given all—given the polls and what clearly part of that is voting saying they think right now that he's too old to be president and can't imagine another four years of him. That is specific to Joe Biden and the situation we're in. Sure. It was the same thing Democrats tried to make an argument out of in 1984. It's kind of a movie we've seen before. That's why I was a little surprised by Peggy's column in the Wall Street Journal, uh, because she went through the same thing with her boss. At the time, it was the oldest president. And the same kinds of editorials and concerns in polling 
uh, were taking place at the time among among the American voters. So it doesn't really concern me. I also think he might be the oldest president in history, but he's also been the most successful first-term president in history we've ever had. Yeah, I, I do think that just saying that he's the most successful first-term president, when so many Americans obviously feel very differently about that, is not necessarily a winning message. The majority of Democrats did not, do not want Joe Biden to be the nominee. The party is pressing on without him. Joe Biden, it's worth noting, did signal that he might only run for uh, stay in office for one term at the beginning of his 2019 uh, race, seeming to understand that some people might be willing to bet on him on the short term, but not the long term. And I, 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 I really. He was a bridge. He said he'd be a bridge to another generation and to a new generation of leadership. He didn't say the bridge was in four years. Well, I, I think the, he meant the bridge was after he was done being president. Okay, well, he can he can say now what he meant then, but many people, most people interpreted his remarks at the time, and there was a lot of reporting on it, that he might only be a one-term candidate, which put some people's fears about his age uh, to the side. And now we're seeing that he's going to have to live with polling and public opinion, which reflects a, a lot of negativity around the idea that he is continuing forward at this unprecedented age, not just at this age, but with what some people are perceiving as a, a cognitive or um, physical decline from what they saw four years ago or back when he was vice president of the United States. So what do you say directly to Democratic voters who have that concern, who do not feel like he's been the most successful president in their lifetimes, much less in the history of the country, who feel like he reneged on a number of promises, including um, um, a student debt cancellation, getting into this war in Israel-Palestine, which has tanked his numbers among Arab Americans in key state of Michigan. He's flailing with younger voters who also have more solidarity with um, Palestine, this Palestinian liberation movement, et cetera. What do you say to them, who are the ones that have to be convinced to actually vote and who are not going to easily fall for platitudes like, trust us, he's the best that we've ever had? I would say that he's the first president to ever try to uh, cancel student student debt, and he came pretty damn close to it. Uh, I would say that it is no, it is nothing new in American foreign policy that we are a loyal ally to the state of Israel. That's also not new. I would also say to young voters, they have a choice to make. Do they want to vote for a candidate who has no problem uh, with? military-style military assault weapons on the street or in schools, or do they want to vote for the candidate who actually wants to take them away? Or do they want to vote for the candidate who took their right to an abortion away? Or do they want to vote for the candidate who wants to codify it? That's up to them. That's their choice. It is a choice, though, and they have to make that choice. And I, I think once we get through, you know, when the Republicans have their nominee, I think everything will kind of congeal the way it always does. And uh, everybody will go to their tribal partisan corners because everybody will want to back their team and everybody will get on the team and it will come down to a choice between two people. And you know what, uh, despite what the polls are fun and they're great fun to talk about and take up a lot of time on, on cable news, uh, but they are not predictive of outcomes. Actually, I would say the evidence we have right now, uh, according to 2018, 2020, 2022, is that the voting behavior and the voting trends of, of the electorate lean, give Joe Biden the edge. Independence in all three elections, whenever Donald Trump or Joe Biden or their two parties are on the ballot, Joe Biden and his party have won. 
that's pretty that, that that's pretty good news to me. Uh, and polling really does not predict outcomes of elections. We were ahead by nine points in Ohio. I remember that. Michael LaRosa, thank you so much for joining us to make your case. We always appreciate it. You're welcome. Former President Donald Trump watched the Ultimate Fighting Championship in New York on Saturday alongside Kid Rock, Tucker Carlson, and UFC President Dana White. Of course, Joe Rogan was at the event as well. The former president's appearance created a buzz on conservative social media. Conservative commentator and host Benny Johnson wrote on X, my politics is whatever this is. <laughs> so, Robbie, what is this? It's the UFC Fighting Championship. It was in New York. Um, so a lot of the popular figures in conservative and alternative media there, obviously. Um, I, I was interested, for a couple reasons, to see um, Donald and Tucker together. Because remember, there was recently this conversation that Donald Trump had uh, with Buck Sexton and Clay Travis about his VP, where D Donald said, um, I get along really well with Tucker. I like him. And yeah, I would be considering him. It was kind of an offhanded remark. Um, but so then it's interesting to see them hanging out together. Um, also, I wondered if Joe Rogan and Donald Trump were talking because Donald Trump has not been on on Rogan's show. Mm. He clearly wants to be on Rogan's show. I think we've heard that his people have reached out many times, and Rogan has so far said he doesn't want to have Trump on because he doesn't want to see be seen as helping Trump. Um, although obviously he's had on other political candidates and and you know all sorts of people, and it does, it's not necessarily an endorsement. But anyway, he said he doesn't want to have Trump on for whatever reason. So I, I wondered if they got an opportunity to, to talk there. Well, I don't have a full accounting of what political candidates he has had on, but he has notably not had on very many presidential candidates back in— uh, Well, he had on Bernie Sanders. That's what I was about to say. Back in 2020, when Bernie Sanders went on Joe Rogan, um, the liberal media went crazy, uh, accused uh, Bernie Sanders of basically co-signing anything that Joe Rogan had ever said on his show, and turned what was a really amazing moment, frankly, in terms of getting in front of that enormous working-class audience into a, a dark spot on the campaign. I don't think it actually was, but the mainstream media tried mm -hmm. to turn it into that. And at the same time that other campaigns were disavowing uh, Bernie Sanders' choice to go on, Joe Rogan later said on his show that many of them were clamoring to get the same treatment <laughs> that he did. So uh, notoriously, he seems to be going um, by his own gut, going along with his own values when he's making decisions about who to have on, as opposed to feeling like he has to give equal time or feeling like he wants just the clicks of having a leading uh, candidate on the show. So it really would be a game-changing move um, for him to have Donald Trump on the program. Right. No, it certainly would be. Um, it, you know, it's interesting, uh, Benny Johnson, who's this kind of very famous, uh, provocative, conservative online personality, says— um, says this is this is my politics um, you know they're being they're being cheered there your Tucker Carlson Donald Trump Kid Rock um, they're being cheered by the audience there um, you know it's interesting to chart the evolution in in the th the, the, the Rogan type audience the uh, UFC people um, people who like alternative media people who don't trust the elites in the mainstream you know these are all semi overlapping circles um, I, I think our, our show is maybe one of those circles that sometimes overlaps with uh, some of these people I hope um, so it's and obviously, Bernie Sanders, as you just pointed out, was the political figure that, at one point in time, in the not-so-recent past, was the was the person that 
ro a Rogan and a Rogan audience was most excited about. Um, yet now, so would you would you dispute that there's like a there's an increasingly right wing flavor of of these circles, or is it a, is it a kind of um, is you know Benny Johnson wrong? Is it well these are not necessarily your people; these are independent people. Um, as it, I, I'm not sure I, I quite uh, get the question. Are, is the is the um, MMA uh, UFC the audience. audience? Yeah, I don't think. No, I don't. I think that they've always been a, a, a conservative audience. Um, I think that many conservatives, however, polls indicate support a living wage and health care for all. And that's why Joe Rogan supported Bernie Sanders, because most Americans want these things. It's not really a left position. It's a common sense position. It's a these are services that everyone else in the industrialized world gets. Uh, people in Israel are enjoying free health care, while America sends three to four billion dollars of aid there every year. And increasingly, people are frustrated. And you're seeing this reflected, I think, in more elected conservatives who are willing to say, should this military funding keep going out of the door when we have domestic concerns at home, even while they refuse to spend domestically, as we saw over the fight over every nickel and dime in the Build Back Better COVID relief program, et cetera. Um, but there, with, if no one on the elected left is really going to say much of that, at least in positions of power, there are a handful of squad members. But if the left is being represented by Joe Biden at this moment, um, who is lockstep with the Republican and Democratic establishment both, yeah, then the only airing you're going to have of any of these ideas is with someone like Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump is nowhere near, I think, where the public is on a lot of the issues that are motivating folks right now. But that's part of why I think it would be interesting to hear him pressed on Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan has made a lot of statements that are sympathetic to the uh, genocide ongoing in Gaza. He has made statements that are very sympathetic to the, whatever you want to call them, isolationists or what have you, that don't want more military funding to go out the door to either Ukraine or to Israel. Is Donald Trump, if in, he's in, those, in that situation, in that interview chair, going to be willing to talk honestly about some of these issues or— I mean or not. I would like to see Trump on Rogan to be pressed on some of the issues that clearly Rogan and the audience have a lot of in investment in on, I mean, frankly, on, on the COVID front, um, on the, you know, you can, can press Trump on, you know, if he stands by Operation Warp Speed, if he stands by giving Fauci so much power, if he stands by even the temporary um, um, lockdowns that were implemented, or maybe doesn't, you know, why, why did you then feud with the states when they started opening up? What was, you know, do you have any regrets about that whole process? Um, you know, those are those are questions that uh, that he could be pressed on that Rogan actually has some interest in. And so I would like to see him on the show um, during a Veterans Day speech this Saturday. Trump called those on the left vermin that, quote, lie and steal and cheat on elections. Let's watch. In honor of our great veterans on Veterans Day, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxist, fascist, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections. Uh, we should disclose that the election was not stolen. Don't know if we're still getting in trouble for uh, refusing to put that disclaimer up there, but uh, uh, the election was won by Joe Biden. Trump's speech drew backlash from historians who said his rhetoric is, quote, reminiscent of authoritarians, including Hitler and Mussolini, according to reporting in The Washington Post. Here's what former Biden White House uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said would happen if Trump regains presidential office. Guess what? Joe Biden isn't perfect. 
No candidate is, by the way. But we have to understand what the alternative is here. If elected to a second term, Donald Trump would prosecute anyone he deems an enemy, unleash troops on protesters, and essentially unravel the rule of law as we know it. And this time, he plans to line his administration with people who will actually help him do it. But sure, Joe Biden is three years older and occasionally trips over things. Look, there's a lot to be concerned about right now when it comes to a second Trump term. The speeches are getting much more disturbing and much more unhinged, and we should all hear it that way. Meanwhile, Trump's legal team will mount its defense in the civil fraud case against the former president's business empire. Today, according to The Hill, his team will attempt to prove to New York Judge Arthur Engeron that he should not have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in financial penalties to the state. Well, that Jin Psaki clip is one of the most obvious examples of hand-waving, nothing to see here, folks, down to the gesture, nothing to see here, folks, that I've ever seen in my life. And I do think, I do think she's right about one thing. The age gap isn't really what it's about. It's not about his raw age. It's about his characteristics that people are attributing to his age, that they are observing a different man today than they saw four years ago mm -hmm. or that they saw when he was vice president. And they are concerned about what seems to be cognitive decline. Um, uh, he's, less, he's less cogent than he used to be. He's less articulate than he used to be. He's less mobile than he used to be. And they're concerned that election seasons are grueling, that he's going to actually have to stump around the country if he wants to bring these numbers up. He's not going to have the benefit of running from the basement the way that he did in COVID. And they want to make sure, if everything all these people say about Trump is true, even if you take it on face value, he's Mussolini, whatever, then isn't that an argument to have the most capable representative on the Democratic tip, uh, ticket possible. Yeah, and uh, I saw, you know, I, I saw a little preview of, I think, how many of the mainstream media are going to handle this, because I was watching CNN yesterday for just a few minutes, and um, when the Biden age subject came up, what they did is they had this ready to go. I think it was Jim Acosta had a reel of Trump gaffes, like a couple times in speech when he he said that Viktor Orban was the president of Turkey rather than Hungary. Um, he referred to Obama when he meant Biden. They had like a couple of these examples. And what they were trying to do is say, oh, you, if you have problems with Joe Biden's age, but Trump is just as out of it and just as incoherent and look at all these times, I don't think that was remotely a, a um, fair comparison or a persuasive comparison. I, I, certainly, yeah. Trump is also old, and he's said the wrong word a couple times. It's not the same level, I don't think, of incoherence. There's not nearly as much evidence. Uh, look, he, he's an older man, too, and I'm sure he is tired a lot of the time and is in many ways not the strongest candidate for the Republican side, and they're going to be forced to have him anyway. But if the mainstream media is just going to approach this from a, look, look, they're both so old, and so uh, you, you can't hold this against Biden because look at Trump. I don't think that's going to be persuasive at all. Well, I, I also think that they're—who are they trying to persuade? That's the question. It's Biden's own base that has concerns about his age. Right. Saying, but what about Trump? Those people don't want Trump either. They just want Biden not to be the Democratic nominee. That's, I think, what's so craven and kind of disappointing about the response from so many people in the Democratic establishment. They're acting like they're being gamed up by bad faith enemies, when it's literally Democratic core-based voters that are saying, for one reason or another, either because of his age or his stamina or his lack of being able to articulate his ideas or his policy failures or his what they believe is a tacit and explicit, frankly, support of an ongoing genocide in the Middle East, that they don't want him to be can the candidate. 
And instead, they're like, well, what about Trump? They're those people are never going to vote for Trump. These are your voters. So you have to explain to what to the 70 odd percent of Democratic voters who don't want Joe Biden why they should feel differently and why they shouldn't blame the Democratic Party for rigging this primary system, changing the order of estates in the way that's supposed to be advantageous to Joe Biden, having him not even run in New Hampshire, not allowing there to be any debates, shutting down the primary process preemptively. If they get stuck, if, the, if, if it ends up being the case that, that Donald Trump is the president of the United States of America, why shouldn't all of those Democratic voters who have been ringing the warning bells this entire time not blame, put the blame squarely on the Democratic Party? All right, we'll have more rising right after this. If there was any doubt a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. run would shake up the 2024 presidential race, recent polls likely cast away remaining skepticism about the insurgent candidate. He is polling very well among independent voters, with polls revealing he's actually ahead of President Biden and Donald Trump with the bloc, according to several polls. He's performing better than any independent or third-party candidate in a generation. More notably, RFK Jr. is winning over voters under the age of 45, according to polls by the New York Times, Siena College, and Quinnipiac University. The insurgent candidate proven to be a formidable fundraiser, raking in over $8.5 million in the third quarter, also evidence of his growing support. Should announce as well that Jill Stein uh, has said that her Green Party candidacy is a go. Last week, she's getting in for that race, which will also impact Biden's standing to some degree. Um, so we should talk about that. Jill Stein seeking the Green Party nomination. She was the nominee last time around. Cornell West is no longer in the Green, is spe specifically running for Green parties running as an independent. Well, so. Howie Hawkins was the Green Party candidate last time last around, time, but she was uh, 2016. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. So because Cornell West is no longer running as the Green, the Green Party has to find an alternative candidate. It is Jill Stein. Um, it seems, frankly, like a strong choice. You can't deny that she has name recognition in part because she has been um, the punching bag of liberals who refuse to interrogate any uh, of the ways that the Democratic Party's own decision-making caused them to lose in 2016. She instead has been the um, bete noire of the party, and you can see this in coverage. Um, she is being referred to as a, flu a fruit fly mm -hmm. that won't go away. Um, all of the ire from 2016 is still packaged and ready to go uh, at her, but it seems from these polls that the Democratic Party obviously has a much bigger problem here. The problem is that there is actually an appetite for any number of non-democratic candidates, or non-democratic establishment candidates, I should say, some left-leaning people who are running on the Democratic ticket, like Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips, some people who are running as independents, like Cornel West and Cenk Uger. And then you have the, the main story here, which is RFK Jr., who is polling at something like 25 percent, right. a three-way matchup with Donald Trump and Joe Biden, who is doing very well with the very constituency group that tends to augur the outcome of these elections, independence. So we haven't had a poll result this favorable for a independent third-party candidate um, who's actually in the race since Ross Perot, who similarly polled 20-21% um, and then did ultimately end up with 19% of the vote. I was just reading this CNN article to remind me of the exact numbers. Um, so he's joining a pretty—RFK uh, Jr. has already joined a very um, small— club of candidates who have polled this well uh, without being Republican or Democrat. Um, you know, if you look at the—I mean, his, his impact right now is, frankly, is to eat into Trump's support a little bit. These polls in the swing states, when you have RFK Jr. not in them, um, 
Trump is ahead, well ahead. And then when you put RFK Jr. in, he's not ahead in all of them anymore. He's just ahead in a couple. Um, it, uh, it, it, it seems that, I mean, this, this, it's unsurprising. You have both major party nominees, assuming it will be Biden and Trump, incredibly unpopular in their own parties. They're unpopular generally, and their own voters, uh, a substantial block of them, want there to be someone else. A lot of Democrats think Joe Biden is too old and would prefer a different candidate. Um, a lot of Trump vote, uh, Republican voters have soured on Trump. Obviously, he also still has a very loud and vocal um, group of people who, you know, we've seen his poll number. There are, in the Republican side, actually alternative candidates, and he's easily crushing them, so I don't mean to <laughs> don't mistake me for saying that the entire GOP is ready to turn on Trump or something like that. That's clearly not happening. But there's enough of an un unpopularity, even for their voters, and then certainly with the general election, that people are interested in another choice. And they're going to have one. They're going to have one. It's RFK Jr. Yeah. I mean, I, it will be interesting to see uh, how Republicans start to respond to RFK Jr. going forward. Oh, you're already more seeing more it. They're it eating. I'm People who were very supportive of him when he was mainly aimed at Joe Biden have have really um, started to remind people of what he said about the NRA in the past, what he said about um, uh, people who uh, he disagrees with on climate change. Um, although you know, the, the the history of very non-conservative political views that he's had. Mm -hmm. uh, Glenn Greenwald pointed out that there is a response coming from the establishment wing of the Republican Party. You have a massive amount of money apparently going to, into Nikki Haley's campaign. She's launching a $10 million ad campaign in a bid to overtake Ron DeSantis and present an uh, establishment alternative to all of these candidates that seem to be leading right now. And we do see a interest in her coming out of the debates routinely. Um, people polled afterward think that she did very well, are pleasantly surprised by her performance. And there still is an important chunk of the American public, in addition to the overwhelming majority of the um, establishment uh, blob, that very much wants there to be someone who's going to safeguard things like our consistent aid to Israel and other allies over, uh, overseas. Glenn Greenwald says that her announcing this ad campaign is is basically a, a call, a, a bad signal to all of the establishment actors to say, invest in her if you want a return to normal, return to the status quo. Donald Trump, despite being the leading candidate, isn't quite offering that kind of surety mm -hmm. um, to the Republican establishment. What happens, though, when you have multiple people laying claim to this anti-establishment lane, none of whom is doing it perfectly? RFK Jr. has gotten a lot of flack for seeming to endorse—we talked about this last week—some uh, of the college censorship that's been going on. Columbia University last Friday banned two uh, pro-Palestine student groups, including Jewish Voices for Peace, the leading Jewish advocacy group that put together that really um, enormous event at Grand Central Station a couple of weeks ago that shut it all down, and subsequently that event uh, at the um, Statue of Liberty. You know, that is such a huge issue in the same way that COVID was a, a mobilizing issue for a lot of his supporters. So is so are these free speech issues, and I do wonder how stable his support is going to be as he starts to take more establishment positions that historically candidates have had to take if they want to win the White House. Yeah, Nikki Haley certainly has conventional or establishment um, foreign policy views. You know, if you've watched her speaking for five seconds at any of the debates, that comes across a reminder that she is a. A neoconservative. Um, she supports not just continued aid to Israel, but also trying to 
still trying to win the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, that's her main point of difference with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis. Um, she, she does, you know, to her credit, even though I don't, her foreign policy is, is not one I, I think Republican voters want at all. It's not one I particularly am enamored with. She does poll um, the best right now against Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And even in the three-person matchup with RFK Jr. as well, it, it shows her um, Unlike the other Republicans, with the president with RFK Jr. in the mix, she's still winning the election. Yeah, um, if she were the candidate, and it would held today with those three. Yeah, and it, I, back to um, the left side of things, Cornell West. You know, some of the his um, critics were concerned that if he did leave the Demo uh, leave the um, Green Party uh, ticket, he would falter. Uh, the reason being that, unlike RFK Jr., he is not a beneficiary of millions of dollars of um, cash from rich donors. Uh, he got dinged, I think appropriately so, for accepting a relatively modest donation from Harlan Crow, but someone who absolutely is not ideological bedfellows with the kind of people who want to support Cornell West. And if you stay on the Green Party, then you do have much more in the way of already won ballot access in states across the country. Trying to go it alone as an independent without millions and millions of dollars to do the um, signature campaigns that are necessary to get on the ballot in 50 states, it's an incredible uphill battle. Uh, and it's making Jill Stein, in some respects, even if she's a less exciting candidate, simply because she's already run before and doesn't have the kind of broad reach of someone like Cornell West that's been in the public eye for so long, in the eyes of some progressives, is seeming like the surer bet, simply because she's more likely just to be on the ballot. That concern mm -hmm. um, is certainly being shown and felt uh, in the mainstream media as people weigh on in her campaign. I think we have a clip of a conversation about Jill Stein's entrance into the race. Let's take a look. Jill Stein is uh, apparently running as well. She heard Hillary Clinton what, back in 2016. You think that's going to be a major setback for Biden? Jill Stein. Um, it's like a fruit fly that you can't get rid of, you know? Um, it could hurt Joe Biden. Now, again, even if she got 1% of the vote, that could also, you know, come against Joe Biden's coalition. The one thing I will say, though, is that with this potential six-person presidential race, we're in unprecedented times at this point. So we've been in unprecedented times with the potential nominee of Donald Trump and having felony convictions. So people are really going to have to figure out how to run races, to talk to voters, to talk to the issues. And even with everything as an uphill battle right now for the Senate for Democrats, after this week, with abortion being a leading issue, I still think there's an opportunity to go and talk to voters and really meet them where they are and Democrats pull it out. What do you think? My concern is that instead of talking about ranked choice voting, which would, of course, eliminate mm -hmm. the spoiler effect, the status of Democratic Party insiders, the opinion of Democratic Party insiders seems to be to say the very existence of third-party campaigns is a problem, and we want to work to suppress them no matter what. It didn't matter that the Libertarian Party got, like, three times as many votes as Jill Stein pulling from the right, while yeah, Jill Stein pulled from the left. it was 1% versus 4%. It was ridiculous. 
to, so to the right. extent that you wanted to crush all of these independent parties, it would actually help Republicans have even more of an edge because their independent party is more successful than the left's right. independent right. party. And, but and anyway, the idea that all of the vote that all of the Jill Stein voters, if not for Jill Stein, are voting for Hillary Clinton, or all of the uh, act, frankly, it's even less clear on the uh, libertarian side mm -hmm. because some of those people would have voted for Donald Trump, some of them would have voted for uh, for Hillary Clinton because we're talking about 2016. Some of them would have not voted at all. Some of them would have penciled in Ron Paul, and and yeah. it, it, the idea that just claiming that one entire other coalition would get all those voters, and the same is true of Jill Stein. A lot of those people would yeah. not vote her. They'd write in someone they prefer. So, so it's already incorrect thinking to presume that all of the third-party independent voters automatically belong to one of the major two-party candidates is such a—that's 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 like an ideological concession that uh, I'm not willing to make and you're sure. not willing to make and no one should be willing to make. It's beloved by pundits and pollsters in the mainstream who like, you know, moving the— Moving the uh, the little the little beans around on the abacus and saying, well, if they got all these, I mean, you know, it's yeah. it's, it's they, if, they if Hillary had gotten uh, sixty thousand more um, rural working class uh, Bernie interested voters in Pennsylvania and uh, and Michigan, uh, she would have been president, but she didn't. Sorry. 88,000 black voters in Wisconsin who came out and voted for Barack Obama in 2012 stayed home and did not choose to vote for Hillary Clinton. Well, Jill Stein made them do that. And that is just one state, right? Those were not, those 88, and her margin of uh, loss in that state was like 20 odd thousand. They were so very afraid of her, so they think had to about stay that. Home that day. Yeah, the blame game is much she was more out there. Uh, appealing than any kind of introspection, it seems. Stick around, we'll have a rising for you after this. The FBI has seized multiple electronic devices belonging to New York City Mayor Eric Adams on Monday as part of an ongoing investigation into potential illegal campaign fundraising dating back to 2021. According to multiple reports, Adams was confronted by FBI agents after an event and served with a warrant to confiscate those devices. Investigators are probing foreign campaign donations Adams allegedly received from Turkey back in 2021 when he was still the Brooklyn borough president running for mayor of the Big Apple. Adams denies any wrongdoing, and it should be noted he has not been charged with anything. In a statement he issued via email, he wrote, quote, As a former member of law enforcement, I expect all members of my staff to follow the law and fully cooperate with any sort of investigation. And I will continue to do exactly that. I have nothing to hide. The Hill reached out to the FBI's New York field office, but the agency declined to comment. So, yeah, so this is interesting. So there, there's no um, evidence yet that, that there's no reason to think Eric Adams necessarily is a target of the investigation. He's not been charged with anything. It seems to uh, hinge on an, an aide to him. Her name is Brianna Suggs. Uh, she was a intern, actually, uh, and then and then became a one of the major campaign fundraisers mm -hmm. when he was running for mayor. Um, and the issue is, the allegation is that um, some of these, there was a fundraiser that was organized by a building that might be um, uh, jointly owned by the Turkish government or mm -hmm. Turkish financial interests. And then Turkey specifically wanted its new consulate opened up um, in time for a, I believe, a UN meeting. And But the fire department had not approved the this new building's um, uh, fire safety practices. And Eric Adams when he became mayor, was able to um, was able to convince them to 
to sanction the new building. So the question is, did Turkey make some kind of improper it was some kind of improper fundraising thing for Eric Adams as kind of this quid pro quo. That's again, that's what I'm piecing together based on what the New York Times has reported so far. And there's no, there's not a process, there's not an arrest or an indictment or anything of that nature yet. So it's not known whether he violated ostensibly some campaign finance rule. So the can this story really um, emerged on the second of this month when uh, there was a warrant against uh, Brianna Scuds. Uh, and confiscated some of her devices in a manila folder from her house that was labeled Eric Adams. The warrant uh, obtained to search Mrs. Scuggs' home sought evidence, this is again from the New York Times, of a conspiracy to violate campaign finance law between members of Mr. Adams' campaign, the Turkish government or Turkish nationals, and a Brooklyn-based construction company, that's the KSK construction, I think, that you were alluded to, whose owners are originally from Turkey. The warrant also sought records about donations—this is an additional piece—from Bay Atlantic University, which is a Washington, D.C.-based college whose founder is Turkish and affiliated with a school that Adams visited when he went to Turkey back in 2015, when he was Brooklyn Borough's president. So the question is whether or not this uh, relationship that's yeah. stretched over a course of years with various Turkish nationals were part of a pay-to-play scheme. The warrant um, also inquired as to whether or not there was a, um, a straw donor scheme where people are able to donate to uh, campaigns through other people disguising sure. who the, the core donor actually is. And there was some implication or allegation that because of how generous uh, New York's uh, federal matching funds are, uh, how many how many dollars the state will put to donations given by um, residents of New York City, that, that particularly juices up the scheme. It makes every dollar that they're able to give through a straw, straw, do, uh, straw donor uh, scheme even that much more beneficial to his campaign. Yes, the New York Times points out that Eric Adams has actually visited Turkey six or seven times. Um, one of those trips was paid for by a Turkish government official. Um, so I, I should clarify, it was after he had won the Democratic nomination, defeating um, Andrew Yang and some others, I think before he had actually become mayor, was when he um, contacted the fire commissioner and relaying the Turkish government's desire to use the building on a temporary basis, and then the city did ultimately um, grant occupancy yeah. for that building. So I mean, we'll have to see how it turns out. I, he could may maybe say, well, I was, I was just, I relayed their request. It was not improper. Um, of course, it looks like he has a long history of connections to, uh, to Turkish government officials. So there will be a lot to continue looking into here, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, part of why this story, I think, has resonated so much is it's because, because— people just don't like Eric Adams. <laughs> well, it's not just that. It's because he's been dodging these kind of mini-scandals for a very long time. They don't just not like him. They don't like him for real reasons. And one of those reasons is that there was some debate as to whether or not he actually lived in New York City when he was running for office. He ended up bringing camera crews into an apartment that he averred was his, but the apartment didn't exactly look like a place that anyone had really lived in. There were a bunch of, um, like, sneakers that you would, might expect, you know, a lot of—a big sneaker catalog that you might expect from, like, a kid, a young person, lined up against the wall. There was meat in the refrigerator. He's very famously a vegetarian, and there was some speculation that it was actually his son's house that he was um, mm -hmm. saying was his own house. Uh, obviously, his politics have come under some scrutiny by people in New York who are to the left of Eric Adams. He was—when um, uh, the scandal first broke with uh, the uh, warrant against Brianna Scuggs, he was attending an event um, uh, arguing 
against the what he's described as an immigration crisis in New York City, saying that there aren't enough resources for immigrants there, and entertaining a line of argument that is whatever our value judgments are aside, is most often articulated by people on the right side of the political spectrum. Of course, he won in the first place in this really divided race where um, the, there was a lot of cannibalization of progressives of each other's votes, and then a last-minute um, Me Too accusation of the leading, more liberal candidate without a rallying behind a, an alternative left-leaning candidate until it was too late, and that largely led to the outcome that we saw. So. There's been a lot of people with kind of knives out for Eric Adams for a, a very long time. And to some folks, this feels like chickens coming home to roost. But of course, as you pointed out, there's been no charges yet. And so we'll have to just keep following the story. Yeah, we will continue to report developments on that. And we will have more rising right after this. Popular ESPN analyst Stephen A. Smith joined Abby Phillips on her CNN show to opine on the state of the Democratic primary and some potential new entrants into the race. Let's take a look. I, I mean, look, he's a popular guy, but what do you what do, but what do you make of just the idea that I mean, according to this, real people in politics have approached him and said you should consider this. Well, first of all, real people in politics have approached me and talked to me about running. It ain't happening. I'm not interested. Let me get that out <laughs> running, of the way. Running for president? But let's understand, it, 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 it running for president, it, okay. it speaks to the level of desperation that exists in this country, Abby. That's really what's going on here. It's not about Dwayne Rock Johnson. It's an indictment against the presumed candidates for the 2024 election. Like you pointed out at the top of your show, you've got one former president that without question, I mean, boo-boo the fool knows, he will engage in a campaign event if he is the president of the United States again. He will not rest until he gets back at everybody who's gotten at him. That's his M.O. In the case of Biden, we're seeing somebody that just doesn't seem lucid and confident enough to be on that position four years from now. Maybe at this moment, yes. But do you have the confidence that he can do what you need him to do and run in this country for four years, starting in, in 2024 when he's 82 years old? The answer is absolutely not. So guess what? If you want to ask me or anybody else, Dwayne Rock Johnson, yeah, I'd vote for him before I voted for one of those two. So he's not alone in his uh, hypothetical support for Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So apparently, uh, after a, a poll showed that 46 percent of Americans would support his campaign. Biden would kill for those numbers. <laughs> right? So what do you mean? Commentary from uh, Stephen here, it sounds like a lot like we, what we say here all the time, and what is, frankly, a, a perspective that is not often heard in the context of a CNN panel. No, for sure. Um, I, I saw uh, Savvy Sabs, who we have on the show sometimes, and she responded, I think, a little dismissively here. Uh, why is CNN interviewing Stephen Smith about politics? <laughs> like, because he's a sports person, not a politics person. Okay, but that's kind of the just leave it to the experts approach that I don't think is necessarily good when the media does it or really quietly captures the mood of the country. Um, there are a lot of people uh, who like Stephen A. Smith and probably agree with him that I clearly agree with them. We can know it from polls that they are totally dissatisfied with the choices of Biden and Trump for president. And they don't like those individuals. They think they're way too old. They think Biden is so old. And then Trump has all the baggage that he has and are looking for any alternative thing to grasp onto. I don't think The Rock 
going to run for, for president. Uh, the, the, people say this about Ro The Rock. People said this about Kid Rock. Uh, maybe there's just something about being a, a Rock-based celebrity that, uh, that, that, appeal, that calls to you to run for political office. So I don't think it's going to happen, but it just it, it does point to you know, the real attitude. Like, Stephen Smith's not a political expert, but he votes. People like him vote. Right. People, most of the people voting, the actual electorate, are not political news junkies. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I wish they were, and I wish they were watching our show, you know, every single <laughs> second of it. But frankly, we don't even talk about politics for the whole show, because it's, sometimes it gets a little boring, and it gets a little tit-for-tat, and actually starts to resemble just sports commentary. So well, I think there's, yeah. I think there's a real attitude here. I think that, frankly, Stephen A. Smith, coming from a world outside of politics, but where he's very much doing commentary, is, is a good is a good barometer. Now, I don't co-sign the idea that it should be someone like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, simply because we know absolutely nothing about his politics, what he support, and he's kind of like generic independent. It's like saying a generic independent polls well. We don't know what he thinks about gun control. We don't know what he thinks about health care. We don't know what he thinks about Ukraine. We don't know what he thinks about anything. So this poll was done back in 2021. He describes himself as a centrist and a political independent. So beyond that, who even knows? So I, I echo Gabby's, uh, sorry, Sabi's frustration insofar as she's saying, well, why are we talking about The Rock? He should be talking about uh, other candidates that are in the mix who actually have a uh, policies that would benefit the American people. However, generally speaking, his critique of why the Democratic Party is digging a real hole for itself by refusing to acknowledge the really real frustration that he's channeling about Biden's age and out of touchness with the American people, that I want to hear more of. That, I think, is a really good wake-up call to the people watching CNN. I do think it's kind of interesting increasingly to hear this, um, this criticism of Trump that uh, people that, as Stephen Smith made there, I'm hearing it, you're hearing it from a lot of Democrats and a lot of mainstream uh, people. We interviewed Michael LaRosa today and talked about Jen Psaki, mm -hmm. both making this criticism that Trump cannot be let in office again because Trump's revenge, in, Trump's revenge will be too terrible and uh, he, he's coming to get all of his political enemies. And, you know, without necessarily endorsing this view, I, you know, I want always people, I think, in the Democratic coalition or mainstream people, non-Trump people, to understand that one of the things that drives Trump voters mm -hmm. to cling to him is their perception that exactly what you just described is what's happening to them and what's happening to him. Mm -hmm. That he is currently the victim of a vengeance campaign by uh, prosecutors at the state and national level, that he was impeached twice, that he's that they're literally trying to put him in prison. Now, you can respond to that by saying, well, the things they're doing there are legitimate. Um, but of course, you know, if Trump were to, to win the presidency and then fire people who he thinks are incompetent or for cause or with it, that wouldn't be if you're just going to knee-jerkedly call that revenge well isn't that exactly what they're doing to him you, so you have to my point being you have to take on the individual merits of each of the things without saying it would just be so terrifying if Trump came into office and what replaced some of the bureaucracy with his people like that's just that's just politics yeah. that's just it's it's I mean, it's not entirely winner-take-all because the federal bureaucracy is incredibly entrenched, but if he were win to win office, part of the reason people are voting for him is, is to change the culture in Washington, D.C. I would argue he didn't accomplish that to nearly a, a good enough degree the first time around. But I'm, I, I'm interested in pushing back on this revenge idea a little yeah, bit. Democrats should be running on that. I, I was listening to Pod Save America, and uh, apparently Biden is, is rolling out and testing, with some success, a message uh, about 
how Trump said that these specific auto plants were going to stay open if he became president, and they closed, and really pointing to specific promises these kind of populist promises that he reneged upon at the same time that Biden is obviously um, standing with the UAW workers, et cetera. I think that's a much more useful line of attack for the Democrats to go on. But their problem is not just with the idea that Trump is Mussolini and he's going to do revenge and take political prisoners if he comes back, uh, gets back in office. The line that they've been using, the threat of Trump, has often been, for, long, for, uh, for a long time, been abortion rights, um, which, of course, now are already over, and this idea that he was going to attack specific populations, namely Muslims and the Muslim ban. And now we've heard from so many Arab Americans that they feel like what, uh, what Joe Biden is enabling in Palestine mm -hmm. is way worse than the Muslim ban, and that will take 100 Muslim bans over 10,000 people dead in Gaza. So what are you going to say to these voters now? You already—abortion rights are gone. And it happened during the Biden administration. Obviously, the stage was set a long time before Biden, but it happened during the Biden administration. And now, frankly, it's the only saving grace for Democrats, the fact that they're able to run on abortion. And many voters are looking at that and saying, you failed to codify Roe as a right, even when you had the votes to do it, even when, Joe, um, when Barack Obama was running in 2008 saying that was the first thing on my agenda. You declined to do so. You didn't want to waste your political capital on doing that. And on some level, Maybe you knew that it was a useful political um, carrot to dangle to make people have fidelity to the Democratic Party, even when you betrayed every other promise. You put us in this position. You didn't force Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire. And now you're using it as a political cudgel to get us to keep voting for you again and again. And maybe this is the line in the sand, and we're not going to do it. We've already lost everything, and we're not going to keep coming out for you. This is, this is the level right. of despair the Democratic Party is contending with. And I don't know if the hand-waving from Jen Psaki and these other establishment tastemakers is going to do it. Yeah. Well, it's almost like they're saying it won't be business as usual if Trump takes over again. He's going to do things his handlers can't control. That sounds great to a lot of voters. <laughs> like, great. Where do I sign up? Sure. <laughs> How do I vote for him? More rising right after this. Stay tuned. Secret Service agents protecting Biden's granddaughter, Naomi Biden, opened fire on three people as they attempted to break into an unmarked and unoccupied vehicle. This went down late last night in Georgetown. The agents assigned to protect Naomi Biden were out with her in the Georgetown neighborhood late Sunday night when they saw the three people breaking into the window of the parked and unoccupied SUV. One official told the AP on the condition of anonymity. One of the agents opened fire, but no one was struck by the gunfire. The Secret Service said in a statement, the three people were seen fleeing in a red car, and the Secret Service said it put out a regional bulletin to Metropolitan Police to be on the lookout for it. Hmm. This is very disturbing. Um, carjackings in D.C. have been talked about a lot uh, recently because they are up. They're up dramatically in the neighborhood that I live in. There's like twice as many this year so far as there were last year. Um, uh, Representative Henry Cuellar, a Democrat, was carjacked in his car very near where I live in the city. Um, it, same story there. It was three uh, people with masks, with guns, came up while he was sitting in the car. Not so, so they actually had him get out of the car and stole it. He said they seemed to be young. I think it was reported that he thought they were probably under, around the age of 16. And they did recover the car in that case. Yeah, 65 percent of those arrested for carjacking are kids, are, are juveniles. Yeah. So that wouldn't be surprising, which I think 
mean, I know you're going to disagree with this, but I think it raises some interesting questions about the um, wisdom of firing at them, especially since it was an unoccupied car and it didn't seem like any lives were at risk. Well, I need to know more about the specific circumstances. Obviously, wildly opening fire in the middle of a crowded street uh, it would not be ideal. I mean, they, they didn't hit the person. They, it, I'm glad no one innocent um, was hit as well. I, I don't know that... Um, you know, indiscriminately firing on carjackers is the solution, but there needs to something very much has to be done because we are living in a in this city. So every in, in many cities, carjackings and thefts and crime um, increased during the pandemic. In a lot of places, in most places, it's actually receded back down to acceptable levels. That is not the case here in the nation's capital. There is a there is a real problem. We have. We've had dramatically more murders this year than we had last year so far. Um, the year isn't over yet. Um, like I said, the, the carjacking—and it seems to be, again, mostly, um, like, gangs of teenagers. Um, this is a very—this is a very serious problem, and it's—I uh, it's, mean, it's—I'm sure the people doing it had no idea that this was Naomi Biden, just like they probably had no idea that this was— uh, the congressmen, um, they're just they're just targeting vehicles and uh, and making off with them. There was one uh, last week. Uh, cra the carjacker stole the car and then crashed it into a, a gas station, which is obviously very dangerous. Um, uh, <laughs> Mariel Bowser has been distributing. Did you hear about this? You, if you own a vehicle, in D if you live in DC and you own a vehicle, which I qualify, I could take advantage of this wonderful program. They're uh, giving out free trackers. You can put a tracker in your vehicle so that when it's carjacked, you can watch it like a little, like a like a missing, uh, like a missing laptop or a missing AirPod. You could, you could. Is that is that not something useful that you might want to take advantage? Oh no, of? for sure, I would absolutely take advantage of that. But we need the problem actually addressed, um, uh, the the carjacking problem, because uh, this is this is not good. I wouldn't. I live in a. Nice area of the city. I certainly would not park my car on the street overnight. I see, um, I see gl broken glass uh, in the area, like where I walk my dogs, all the time. Um, so it's really bad, and it, I don't know what it says about the nation's capital that we can't bring this problem under um, under control whatsoever. Yeah, it does seem like there's a pretty high recovery rate on jacked cars, uh, and some of them, I think, are these joyride instances, which is probably why there's such a high recovery rate. So I do think that having a tracker in your car is a good idea, and that also is perhaps why it's a good idea not to go ahead and um, compound the crime with a with a homicide. Going back to the uh, the Biden instance, I do wonder if there's protocol about whether Secret Service agents are supposed to engage with other kinds of crimes that they see happening, if they have to see something, say something, and does that at all imperil their ability to do their primary job of protecting whoever they've been assigned to? I mean, you can imagine a world in which carjackers returned fire, for instance, and now you've escalated a situation where from I'm protecting the president's granddaughter to I am instigating fire at her as opposed to people breaking into a car. I do wonder if there's going to be any follow-up investigation into how that situation in particular was handled, because it doesn't seem like, as you pointed out, Robbie, gunfire in the middle of Georgetown, which is a popular area full of nightlife and people out at all hours, um, is necessarily a good outcome. Right. The I mean, the vehicle was a, a government—it was their vehicle. They weren't in it. So I, I think they—it wasn't like they were witnessing a random mugging or something. Yeah, but— They had to—it they, could have been 
someone was breaking in the car in order to put a device in it or some kind of, I mean, they, they wouldn't have, <laughs> they weren't going to just like let them do it and not do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm of the view that there's a whole range of human activity between not doing anything at all and shooting someone, but I suspect that the, uh, I, I'll leave it up to the Secret Service people with all of their uh, training to affirm whether or not my suspicions are accurate. Yeah. Um, well, but it is, I mean, it is dangerous. People have been killed um, while being carjacked. There was a, that, uh, the, that video f footage went very viral. It's horrible of an older man in the city who was being carjacked uh, actually by teen girls and, uh, and is, while you know, fighting for control of the steering wheel, gets, gets hit by the car or gets like, thrown out of the vehicle and killed. So it, it, it's uh, because cars themselves are you know, dangerous, um, dangerous things. Uh, th there can be a, a, a high injury, accident, fatality rate for the, for the victims and for the perpetrators. So it is, I mean, it's something that needs to be addressed, whether that is um, uh, the police doing something in the midst of the carjacking, I don't know. But, you know, just, just like, like you said, oh, they recover the vehicle a lot of time. I mean, I don't, that's, I don't think that's very comforting. It's not a, like, oh, your car's going to get stolen, but you might get it back is not, like, we no, can't have a society I, like I that. I don't think it's comforting. I'm not saying that uh, to suggest people should be comforted about their car being stolen. I say that to suggest that it might be better to wait for the cops to recover it as opposed to yeah. shooting a perpetrator, especially since we talked at length earlier this year, was it last year, Robbie, about uh, the guy who killed a child outside of his house because he thought he was jacking his car, and there was a lot of debate about whether or not that was the right course of action. Um, I think, what was he, a 12-year-old? I mean, I think he, he was. It, wasn't the debate was over whether it was his car or not? But oh, it, was, it, it was a stall. No, he that, was car That wasn't a car. debate. It wasn't. It wasn't his car. Um, yeah, so, I, we have a different view on this subject. Obviously, I don't think you're required to be the victim of a crime of that magnitude. Not to say that everyone should take every matter into their own hands, but there is going to be more of that kind of. I feel like I need a gun. I need to defend my property. If if these if this number of carjackings continues. So probably the ideal thing would be to actually arrest and then and then and prosecute and keep behind bars the probably small number of people who are responsible for all of these incidents. I have some interesting I, I think I'm more interested to find out why there are so many kids are engaged in this behavior. What other kinds of things could they be occupied doing? Are there enough after-school activities and supports? What's happening with parents in the home? Are they absent because they're working additional jobs? Do we have adequate child care for low-income families? Um, are people experiencing economic precarity that is also driving into some of this behavior? Um, I think if you've seen that kids used to not do this, um, and now they're doing it more, obviously something has changed. And this isn't an issue where people are inherently criminal, violent, and need to be thrown away and, lock, uh, and uh, locked away and throw away the key, especially when you're dealing with children. Um, that's well, my view of the thing. Well, well, of course. And, you know, if we've lost um, social support systems that, um, that prevent, you know, low-income people or people with difficult family situations or people who are on that social fringe and potential to fall into criminal behavior, obviously we want to have some intervention before we get there. Um, I, I mean, I suspect um, a lot of the pandemic mitigations efforts made that a, a lot more challenging, but now we should be able to bring those things back um, be, so that we can stop people from getting into the point of criminality. I think we totally agree on that. But once you're in the position where you're, <laughs> where you're a repeated <laughs> carjacker, um, there needs to be 
there need, the, the public safety component has to enter in at some point. I would just put out there that if you take a 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old and you throw them in jail, they're not going to jail for life because that would be overly punitive. I think everyone agrees that you shouldn't get a life sentence for stealing a car. That means at some point they're going to get out of jail, and you will have just taken those years where they might have orderly been finishing high school, going to college, going to trade school, having a job, starting a family, and making them hardened criminals when they're going to pop out at 25, 26, 27, 29, 30, and then there's still going to be no forward movement on the underlying issue. Yeah, I think we want to... There has to be some middle ground between turning you into a bigger criminal or locking you up forever and releasing you the next day to carjack again at will, as seems to be the case. But we will see if there are any updates on that story later. And that actually does it for today on Rising. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope it was a great show. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.